software is so different that we decided that the prior work was no longer sufficient to meeting the needs of what's happening in the world, right? Andreessen is right. Software is eating the world. Right. So we need a means by which we can look at pricing, packaging, and licensing for software-enabled solutions because those are unique in the world and we needed something new to really capture that. Hi there, this is Vijay Damoji Prapu, and you're listening to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders Podcast. The show where I go behind the scenes with top go-to-market practitioners to discuss their mindset and tactics. Hello there. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders podcast. A sincere and really grateful for you, the listener, for taking the time. Yes. So today, yet another episode, another insightful conversation coming up. This time with the founder, CEO, Luke Homan, who has a series of exits, good exit. We will talk about that because he's got his own consulting slash agency that helps leading product organizations in how to really think about product, not just development, but pricing. So really exciting conversation coming up. With that, welcome to the show, Luke. Hey, Vijay. Hi, everyone. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, excited to be here and uh, excited to be speaking with you today on a lovely Friday afternoon here in the Bay Area. Indeed. Yes. So with that, again, the signature question, all my listeners love the fact that I start the show and we dive right in to the meat of the topic, which is how do you view and define go-to-market? Well, go-to-market is a set of comprehensive activities that help the organization take what they've created and bring it to their customers through any number of direct or indirect channels, any number of partner relationships, any number of uh, sales team structures. Sometimes we have direct sales, sometimes we have indirect sales, we have sales reps, we have sales engineers. So there's a whole set of go-to-market activities that make sure that the organization is prepared to realize the benefit for themselves of what they've created for their customers. Yeah, totally. I, I think you touched upon critical points, right? One is obviously first and foremost, it starts with the customers whom you're really targeting and who you're solving for. That's one. And then the internal aspect, you got the product team, you got the sales team, making sure that they're aligned. Of course, you have product, you have marketing, you have sales, you have customer success if it's a software as a service organization. So there are a lot of these teams that have to be aligned internally while bringing that product and take it to your customer. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, that's a great start. So looking at your career journey and path, clearly, at least in the early phase of your career, you were very deep and very involved in the product development aspect of things. So we'll dive into that, the agile uh, practice sure. and how you helped. Uh, sure. but just to yeah, but just to expand and uh, bring all our listeners up to speed. And can you share your career story, like where you started, why, what was your first job like, and what you became and who you are today? Well, I have had a long history in the technology field, starting working for a very large company called Electronic Data Systems and EDS 
had many, many data centers and I was working in the technical area, literally crawling underneath the floor, cabling computers. I was working in networking. And then one thing led to another and you get promoted, you become a developer. I picked up a bachelor's and master's degree in computer science and computer science and engineering from the University of Michigan. I went back to EDS and I became a vice president of engineering at a subsidiary. And I, but there was this journey in my career of always wanting to learn how to do and create and build the best products for our customers. Mm -hmm. So that journey led me through uh, user interface design, usability, but I actually ended up centering in on product management, mm -hmm. which is really trying to understand the needs of the customers as best you can and then build solutions that meet those needs at a way that creates a profit for the company. In that journey, I became associated with the Agile software development movement and the very beginning helped form the first Agile conference way back in 2003. I have served on the board of the Agile Alliance, have worked with the Scrum Alliance, have written several books, have started and sold companies, have acquired companies. But in all of these areas, I'd say there was a foundation of agile software development practices and agile product management practices, all associated with creating a profitable solution. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, uh, definitely we will get into the companies that you bought as well as the companies that you had a good exit. Uh, okay. For sure. But... So you did mention about why you got fascinated and curious about Agile and Agile development and Scrum process. So you did tie that back to how products get built and how they go to market. And, and you're really curious about the efficiencies and the gaps during right. the development process. Yeah, I wouldn't equate at all Scrum with Agile. I would say that Agile is, the according to the Agile Manifesto, Agile is a set of values and practices. There are many Agile methods, um, Scrum being uh, optimized for small organizations or a, a couple of teams and the scaled Agile framework being by far the leading uh, technique or method uh, optimized for large organizations or large numbers of teams. I have been more associated in my career and more aligned with large scale development initiatives, um, mm -hmm. dozens of teams to hundreds of teams working on extremely large and complex systems. And of course, I am a safe fellow, which is the highest distinction you can have in the uh, safe community. I was a former safe contributor in both agile product management and in lean portfolio management. Mm -hmm. So I'm more associated in my career with the, the challenges of, in terms of a consulting capacity, the challenges of, of large organizations creating profitable solutions. For myself, right, I'm an entrepreneur, and so my organizations are smaller. So I think it's important to, to consider which of the two perspectives I'm being asked about. One perspective is how do you help large organizations with globally distributed teams work more efficiently? And also for your own work, how have you created software companies and then manage them because they're slightly different forces and sometimes radically different forces when you're working with one or two teams versus say 400 teams. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I would like to like you to share that expertise. I mean, as you well articulated it, Luke, when you're building your own companies, you're obviously small and nimble. 
Yeah. You'll be applying one methodology versus when you work with the likes of, just, just not to say that they're the clients, but the likes of large organizations like Google or HP or Cisco or Microsoft, right? I mean, they have huge dev teams sure. spread across. The methodology that they will use would be different for the product development and delivery. That's right. And so let's go back to the where you want to be. If if all you ever want to be is small and stay small, then, then a method like Scrum is probably fine. For me, I've worked in companies and even in my own company, every every family, every company has to have a way of making a financial decision. That's portfolio management. Right. Whether it's you and your partner, your pair bond partner, your wife or your husband, if you were to sit down and make a financial decision of significance, like buying a home or buying a car or taking a family vacation or having a child, you would do it together. Yeah. Similarly, when you're a small company, you still have a portfolio because you're still making significant decisions. And when you're a large company, you're making significant decisions. So when people when people equate significance with a dollar amount, they devalue the kind of decision being made. So let's say I'm Cisco. Well, mm-hmm. my decisions would be hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of significance. Right. That's very different than the decision I would make at a small company but both small and large companies have significant decisions to make about right. how they invest their money, how they spend their money and where they put their attention. Yeah, no, totally. I think you uh, hit it correctly, which is the significance does not correlate or equate to the size of the business, but the significance matters, right? For example, right. I mean, my own journey, I mean, when I work at startups or even for my own consulting company, as we sit today, I, this week, I was figuring out where should I invest my time, energy, and money into should I pursue a different goal market strategy? Should I invest in building new content portfolio that will be relevant for demand gen and demand creation? Or should I work with a co-founder friend of mine where we know for a fact that why am I blanking out? Uh, the AI compliance space, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things happening in that space. Is that the right investment area? Investment, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. And then the scale of the decision making and, and the factors will go many fold, like five, ten X when you talk about companies like Cisco and Microsoft. Right. Yeah. I agree. Fair enough. So you were the founder and CEO of Continuo. Was That's that right. a consulting practice or a software product company or both? Like what is that journey like? Well, most companies are a mix of both. Most companies have some kind of a service component. It's just the degree. I mean some absolutely pure software companies don't. Right. But most companies, as they as they grow and as they evolve, have a services component. Contenio was based on my book, Innovation Games. And what Contenio provided were software platforms for doing games online mm-hmm. and consulting services that would help um, organizations design and produce both in-person and online innovation games events. So... In the Agile community, there are many well-known games like Sailboat or Speedboat, Product Box, Buy a Feature. All of these games have an in-person expression, and many of them have an online expression. So Contenio was a bootstrapped company in the B2B software space where we provided to our customers a platform for doing innovation games with distributed teams and in an online settings. And we bootstrapped it, so we didn't have outside VC funding, um, which is a little rare in Silicon Valley. Right. Um, 
and then we ended up selling Contenio to Scaled Agile in uh, a few years ago, and that was a great outcome for all stakeholders. Yeah, and again, as this is a go-to-market podcast, it'll be good if you can, at least at a high level, talk about your go-to-market journey with Continuo, like the early days to how you scaled it and the exit. I think the question is, to what degree does a given company consider their marketing strategy a go-to-market strategy? Mm -hmm. And I consider that many times the marketing strategy is intimately related to the go-to-market strategy. So we followed a pattern that's somewhat successful in business where we wrote a book, yep. we built training. So the book creates awareness and interest in the training. The training teaches people how to use the techniques and it creates demand for consulting services and online platforms. Mm -hmm. And then once we had the online platforms, we were able to serve the demand that we had created. And in terms of a, a go-to-market strategy, that's where I think you start to see the distinctions between how you intend to go to market and then the feedback from going to market. Yeah. And let me explain one of the pivots that we made at Contenio. We've been talking about innovation games, which is a discrete event of usually between four and eight people. They kind of come together and they work together on a business problem. Yep. Well, we thought the right way to, to price that was per game. And it, because you can think about the unit of value being a game. Right. But what happened was, is that created a variable spend and our customers didn't like variable spend, especially when so much of what we do in business now is you have a fixed monthly fee, but you have variable use. Some uses, sometimes you're using the platform more, sometimes you're using the platform less. Yep. So we found that in our go-to-market strategy, we were charging the right amount of money, but we weren't charging the right way for the money. Mm -hmm. And so that's the kind of go-to-market change that people need to be aware of. And we call that a value exchange model. In our new book, Software Profit Streams, A Guide to Designing Sustainably Profitable Businesses, we talk about as part of your go-to-market strategy, you have to get your pricing, packaging, and licensing down. Yep. And there's choices that you need to make as a product manager or as a product team. How do I trade money for value? Mm -hmm. And that value exchange model needs to be aligned to how the customers both perceive value and how they want to pay for value. So those were some of the changes that we made in our own go-to-market strategy and our own go-to-market journey. Yeah, the brilliance that stands out in your go-to-market journey is you you touched upon a very key aspect. So I, I've done the study of go-to-market leaders, where uh -huh. what sets them apart. So think of like the NBA league. You got 30 teams in the NBA league, but then something magical, something happens when you talk about or peek into the hood of the operations of the, the top two or three basketball teams who are consistently making it to the playoffs and the titles. Right. And it comes down to two or three things. So when it comes to go to market teams, it comes down to content, it comes down to community, and it comes down to experience slash events. So three things. And one thing that we really nailed it very well is the content, which is the book in your case. Right. Right. So the innovation games, when it comes to your earlier company, and then now it's around software pricing, right? 
So what led you to that thought process of first create and write a book, and then from that you got the training material, and then you can do the consulting and then the software? Like what influenced you into going down that path? That's a th No one's ever asked me that before. So that's a really interesting question. I learned the power of writing a book when I first moved to Silicon Valley. My first company in Silicon Valley was a company called Origin Systems. Mm -hmm. And Origin Systems was an absolute breakthrough company. It was wildly innovative. And what we did was we took all of the world's patent data and put it into a data warehouse for analytics in terms of what is the utility of a patent? How does a patent get monetized? What is the patent related to? What are the opportunities for innovation? And it was based on the work of a couple of gentlemen, most notably a gentleman named Kevin Rivette. And I remember when I joined the company, the head of marketing was a guy named David Puglia. And that's where I learned this pattern. Mm -hmm. David, in one of our leadership meetings said, hey, when you're creating an entirely new industry, an entirely new thing, you have to get the content first. Mm -hmm. And the way you get the content first is you write a book. Mm -hmm. And so Kevin Rivette wrote a book called Rembrandt's in the Attic, which was considered a breakthrough and groundbreaking book associated with intellectual property licensing. And that book, combination with our software platform, really drove that company to a successful outcome. So I really credit David Puglia with showing the power of content and then building out the community and the software platform. I would say that at Origin, we didn't have a lot of events, but mm. we really had a great software platform. Yeah. And so I think, Vijay, the, the notion of the content is partially correlated to the degree of innovation or the degree of novelty about what you're offering. When I wrote Innovation Games, it was the first book in the genre of using serious games and serious uh, game techniques and collaborative games to solve problems. And now since then, We've had other books like Game Storming or um, Reality is Broken from Jane McGonigal. But when you're the first one, you really need to create that content so that you can cement the, 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 the industry and cement the breakthrough. And that's why we did that with the Software Profit Streams, right? The new book, there are books about pricing, right? But the problem with the books about pricing is that they're pricing pens and menu yeah. items, and restaurants and wine and, and you know, electrical mostly consumer products pricing, yeah. Yeah, and even in the, even in the business world, the pricing is, is it gets wrapped up into things like supply chains and bill of materials and and which are all important yep. but software is so different that we decided that the prior work was no longer sufficient to meeting the needs of what's happening in the world right andreessen is right software is eating the world right. so we need a means by which we can look at Pricing, packaging, and licensing for software-enabled solutions, because those are unique in the world, and we needed something new to really capture that. Yeah, well said. And clearly, you learned your lessons, and you got the playbook right. I mean, going back to, you mentioned about Origin Systems, you really learned that system from your head of marketing back then, and you applied it in your own consulting company. Yeah, he was, he's brilliant. He was brilliant. And it, and I think it's a consistent pattern. It's not, it's, we're not the only yeah. firm that applies that pattern, but there's enough proven success around that pattern that we should uh, look at that.
Absolutely. So did you write? So did you take time to write the book first, launch it, and then start the consulting practice and the training? Or what is the sequence? So, the, the book was mostly informed by years of consulting experience. Yes. So we were able to mine the experience of ourselves and our customers and really look at all of the different work that we had done over a near 20-year history. So Applied Frameworks has been around for more than 20 years. And so we had a very rich and deep history from which to draw from as we were writing the book. And then now that the book has been written, we're working on the software platform. It's called Horizon. And mm -hmm. got it in the market, and now we're just kind of following good agile practices of continuing to improve the Horizon platform for solution profitability management. Fantastic. So one of the questions I typically ask my guests, and I do that more in the latter part of the show, but clearly when it comes to you, so one of the questions I ask is, what is your special secret sauce, and what should people come to you for on advice when it comes to advice? And clearly... In your thing, it sounds like you master the game around go-to-market in terms of like content, in terms of sequencing, and applying agile and scrum practices. That, that that's how I see it. Uh, thank you. I I would add that the, I would be cautious again about like for example, we're not a sales training company. Sure. Part of go-to-market is training your sales team. Yep. Our our expertise is in the pricing and packaging and licensing. For example, too many organizations try to get to a good, better, best pricing model mm -hmm. where sometimes good, better, best pricing isn't needed. Other problems that we see are companies, especially large companies, will create a solution and then they deliver more value using agile techniques, but they don't raise the price or they don't have a strategy of how their solution architecture captures value. You know, we see applications just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Sometimes the better approach is to keep the main application tight and focused, but then add modules or add-ons that an organization can acquire to enhance their offering. So it's really that strategy that you're looking for that will help you determine what your actual price point is and how to make the most amount of money at it. Yeah. And I'm looking at your book, I mean, the Software Profit Streams book. And as with any top tier books, you would also provide like a canvas. So can yes. you walk us through the canvas for the Profit Stream? Absolutely. So canvases are powerful tools. Like we have the business model canvas and we have the profit stream canvas. So what a canvas does is it allows us to quickly and effectively capture the main elements of a causal system. So I'm an engineer, you're an engineer, we have an engineering background and we think in terms of systems. And when I think about our system, when I deal with pricing, I have to manage three really related items. First, I have to manage my solution sustainability. Right. How, what are the needs of my customer? What are, what are, what does my solution provide to my customer? And how are they evolving over time? Because customers are not static and problems in the world aren't static. So I have to have an ongoing evolution. I need a roadmap, et cetera, et cetera. The second kind of sustainability is economic sustainability. Does my customer feel that they're getting good value, which is more value than what they paid? And am I creating a sustainable business? Am I making a, 
a profit? You know, is my revenue greater than my costs? The third element of sustainability is what we call relationship sustainability. And there's really three relationships that matter for a software-enabled solution or a company. The first is my suppliers. Everyone is in licenses of various technology components. So how am I managing my in licenses and my relationship with my suppliers? The second is my relationship with my customer. Software isn't sold. Software is licensed. So there's a license agreement, a terms of service for a website or a complex agreement for traditional software that defines my use of that software. So what are the terms and the conditions and the entitlements and how am I managing my relationship to my customer? The third component is compliance, which concerns how am I managing my relationship with regulatory agencies, with standards? Like let's say that you and I wanted to build a website together and we wanted to make it accessible to people with disabilities. Well, now I have to honor the WC3 web accessibility standards. And so it's not a law, but it's a choice that I've made. And so when we look at compliance, we're thinking about laws and regulations ranging from say GDPR or the Australian Privacy Rights Act or in California, the CCPA. to standards, to agreements. And because how I manage my relationships determines my relationship sustainability. If I routinely create poor relationships, it's going to be hard for my business to continue to grow and be successful. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a good canvas. I'm I'm, I'm definitely going to refer to that and I'll, I'll highly encourage all the listeners to go check out the book, Software Profit Streams in terms of pricing and packaging. Perfect. Yeah. Wonderful. So yes, I think you shared a great framework there when it comes to pricing and packaging. So switching gears a bit over here, obviously, as you and I know, go to market, there are so many flavors, you'll see successes, you'll see failures. It's not always up and to the right and north. So if you can share either from your own personal experience or working with the various clients that you have, a go to market success story and a go to market failure story, that'd be great. Sure. Well, for a go-to-market success story, one of my clients is CVS Health, and they had an extraordinary go-to-market success story with their introduction of their app for scheduling COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. It was created in the time of crisis, so people were stressed, and it was rolled out in record time for a large company. So a very, very complex app when you think about scheduling for a vaccine, because you've got thousands of stores across the United States, you have geolocation, you have capacity planning, you have store hours. There's a tremendous amount of logistics and data to to do something, quote unquote, as simple as scheduling an appointment. And so from a go-to-market standpoint, they were able to create and deliver that app. Now, in this case, the pricing and packaging were not relevant because it was free. But in terms of a go-to-market success story, that would be one of them. Another one that is more directly related to our work in pricing and packaging is a company called Noify, K-N-O-W-I-F-Y. And Noify creates construction management and billing software. So let's say that you're a small 
subcontractor and you use QuickBooks for your actual invoicing and payroll and things like that. But you've also got to do job costing. You've got to manage payments and invoicing from subcontractors. You've got to correlate the progress of your construction with your progress payments. You're right. not going to put that in QuickBooks. It's it's not the right tool for that. And so Noify has a wonderful platform. And when we started working with them, they hadn't really adjusted their pricing and packaging for a couple of years. They, they've been successful. And the reason we got involved, VJ, is they're, they, they just got a post-seed funding round from a venture capital firm, Companion Ventures. So Applied Frameworks works with venture capital firms and private equity firms to improve the pricing and packaging aspects of their portfolio companies. Yes. So one of the things that we worked on with Noify was we worked on changing their packaging. And this is where you start to see the data of success. Well, before we worked with them, about 20% of their customers signed up for the annual plan. Now, when you think about this kind of software, that's that's tricky. That means 80% of their customers are signing up for the monthly. Right. Well, if you're paying month to month and you're using business process software, it's going to take a few months to change your processes. And yeah. so their churn rates were high, not because their software was bad, but because it does take a little bit of time to get value from changing your business process. And people were dropping out before that value was realized. Mm -hmm. By adjusting their packaging and really tailoring it to the jobs to be done in their marketplace, we got the number of customers signing up for an annual plan from 20% to 60%. Wow. Now, when you sign up for an annual plan, you've already made a commitment for mm -hmm. a year. Right. So those first few months don't feel so stressful because you know you've got time to adjust your processes and figure it out. It also improved their cash flow because they were able to pull a year of revenue up front instead of you know one twelfth of the revenue. And it also made it easier for their sales team to guide the customers through the sequence of changes. They didn't have to rush. Yeah. And it was amazing the, the change that this has had. So their go-to-market uh, process and approach improved dramatically uh, from a pricing change. Fantastic. Great stories. Great success stories for both. So double-click on each of them. CVS, you mentioned about, obviously, it, ha it happened in the time of crisis, the COVID pandemic scenario. Yeah. So what prompted CVS to reach out to you? I'm assuming they reached out to you and who from CVS did that and why? Sure. So we had a prior, as in, as, in, as in so many arenas, we had a prior relationship with their head of Agile. And mm -hmm. so they just reached out to us as part of our normal relationship of doing Agile work and scaling Agile. Yeah. In the sense of, in the work with Noify, the outreach was initially from the venture capital firm that made the investment. Right. So the venture capital firm, Companion Ventures, made the investment and then told Noify, hey, you should work with Applied Frameworks to improve your pricing and packaging. Yeah. So usually in this kind of world, you're going to see word of mouth, referrals, et cetera, et cetera, still a, a significant part of the business. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think that is a smart move, obviously, on your side to work with 
the influencers in in the first case it was the agile head of agile at cbs where you build relationship over the years and in the second case it was the venture capital that's right who influenced uh, for sure now and of course as our, as our software package becomes more prominent we're doing more i would say traditional go to market strategies of webinars like this and podcasts like this and also advertising and you know blogs and just normal kind of content optimization content generation those are all parts of the of the go to market mix and i think it's important for people to remember that when you're smaller your go to market strategy might be more intimate mm -hmm. and when you're larger your go to market strategy might be more volume based with less intimacy yeah. and it's neither is provably right it's just that different go-to-market strategies and teams need different techniques and results. Yeah, for sure. And going back to the case study and success story of NoFi, you mentioned about a great result that you delivered, which is uh, annual subscriptions increased from like 20% to 60%. Yes. So what is the process like? Again, going back to our first question, my first question and our discussion, right? It's about go-to-market. So what is the go-to-market process? First, obviously, I would assume that you guys had to dig into and look at all the CRM records, the pricing and so on, and the number of customers who did that. And then why people are not switching? Yeah. In the case of Noify, we didn't spend a lot of... So, so I would say that you're correct. In a normal case, you would be looking at your CRM data. You would be looking at conversions, et cetera, et cetera. In the case of Noify, we were able to determine improvements to be made through what we call a customer benefit analysis. So mm -hmm. we just took their application yeah. and we deconstructed those features into what are the discrete benefits that you're providing. Then we reverse engineered market segments who needed that benefit. And so, for example, in the original case of Noify, they might have been working with things like, are you a plumber or are you an electrician? Mm -hmm. But the actual use of the of the platform and the pattern of use of the platform was more, are you a single sole proprietor or do you have a larger company where you're managing multiple people doing the work? Or are you an even bigger company where you're managing subcontractors doing work? Yeah. And by looking at the perspective of those features targeted towards these distinct segments, we were able to repackage the offering so that the buyer knew what they wanted. Meaning if I'm coming to the Noify website, I know what I need because I'm a mid-sized company with 20 plumbers working yeah. for me. Yeah. So now I see something that's aligned with me. Right. So in the normal case, you're right. We would be looking at CRM data. We would be looking at some of the um, win-loss data, we would be looking at discount data. But in the case of Noify, we had a pretty strong signal just by doing a customer benefit analysis that we could change the packaging to better align to the needs of given customers. Yeah, fantastic. It's, it's great timing that you shared the story. The reason why I say that, Luke, is I'm actually working with a client, a client of mine where we're doing this positioning exercise. And okay. you and I know the positioning will involve who are your best customers, like what is the target account characteristics, what are the distinct capabilities and features, and then the value themes of those. So That's right. For the customer benefit analysis, you got the account segments or characteristics, you got the features, and then how do you map 
And when you do this exercise, you're honing, you know, tuning into the best fit, like the 20% or 30% of the customer segments that will translate to like 70, 80% of the upward value stream for you. Yeah, we call that a solution benefit map. So once I know my benefits that my customers are seeking, I can look at my features yeah. and then I can look at the relationship uh, between the features that I have, the benefits they provide and the segment that they're targeted against. So it, it is a rigorous and methodologically sound process, but it doesn't take as long as it might sound. We can usually do this pretty quickly because when we're working with existing customers, or existing companies, they have existing customers. So you, like you said, you can look at some of the data and you can find patterns in the data that they have. And then uh, going to my earlier question, which is, yes, you got go-to-market success stories, but I'm sure we all have go-to-market failure stories. So anything that comes to your mind from a go-to-market failure story? Yeah, although I think the question becomes, if I have a go-to-market failure story, to what degree of failure am I talking about? Meaning the ultimate failure is the company itself fails. And mm -hmm. so you could argue that it's not a go-to-market failure. It's just it wasn't a company that was viable. Yep. But it's harder to find go-to-market failures because if the solution is successful or if the company is successful, what that meant was they had a go-to-market experiment mm -hmm. and experiment didn't work. And so they tried something else that did work. Right. So let's go back to Contenio. If we had persisted in trying to force the market to accept transactional pricing, the company would have failed. Yeah. But we adapted. We took the feedback and we adjusted how we would work. I think that's pretty profound. And the reason I think that's pretty profound is that it's important to realize that go-to-market is like product market fit. Sometimes people think that, oh, I have product market fit mm -hmm. and I'm done. Well, to me, and the way I say it is that product market fit is like getting on a highway and it's the, it's the on-ramp, right? That's your product market fit. But once you're on the highway, you have to constantly monitor and adjust your driving. You are always doing micro adjustments. And of course, the faster you're going, the more subtle and the more frequent the adjustment. I, I, you know, I can't turn my, you know, I'm driving down, uh, I'll use one of our highways in the Bay Area, 280 or 101, right. I, I have to be constantly adjusting. Sure. And so I think that, that the product market fit and the initial go-to-market strategy is what gets you into the highway. But after that, it's, it's, a, it's, 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 it's a very strong repeat process of just how am I doing and how am I adjusting? Yeah, I, I think that's a very good analogy. I mean, in my mind, as you're speaking to that, it, it clearly shows, yes, product market fit is not like once and done. Beyond product market fit, there is scaling, there's tweaking, there's iterating. So to, going back to your analogy, when I'm driving on the freeway, I have to constantly adjust whether it's on, oncoming or traffic that's ahead of me. I need to change lanes. I need to slow down. I need to pivot. All these things apply to the go-to-market world. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and to your other point, it reminds me of the conversation that I had with Jeffrey Moore, who was on my podcast earlier. He said exactly along the lines of what you mentioned, Luke, which is they're not really failures. You you have either success or you have learnings. And you right. take lessons from the learnings. Right. And even if the business fails, like there's learning associated with it, but but it's not clear that it's a go-to-market. It could be just a 
sometimes a business fails because it's a right idea, but it's too early for the market. And we've seen that in the technology field where we've seen ideas that get recycled and it's because the technology is improved. And an example of this is there is an original idea for, for Uber and Lyft mm-hmm. that was actually patented about a decade before Uber got started. But the technology just didn't exist, right? The, the the power of our phones, the accuracy of the geolocation services, the payment processing infrastructure, where now it's so easy. You know, I remember when I first used PayPal, it took weeks and weeks to connect our system to PayPal. Now you can connect into any of the online payment processors, uh, including PayPal, with a, a couple of clicks of, an, of a REST API and you're done. But before we had rest, I mean, so so as technology evolves, things that failed in the past become viable in the future. Yeah, no, well said. I think that's nicely put. So you, so again, going back to the favorite topics and how you built your businesses around these two topics, which is the agile world, as well as yeah. now you're in the pricing and packaging. And both those map with my favorite topic within go-to-market, which is product marketing. Yeah. And typically, I've seen, and you can attest to this, Luke, which is it's it's a combination of product management and product marketing yep. that have to tackle these two areas. So what have you seen, like the challenges as well as things that have really worked when it comes to like product management and product marketing in these areas around agile, thinking about prioritization, delivery, and then pricing and packaging? Well, I, I think, VJ, that the Azure community is a little better at working on the product marketing side because... We do have this idea in Agile that I'm creating a constant flow of value to my customers. It's part of the Agile manifesto. It's the set of metrics that we track in SAFE is what we call the flow metrics. And we look at things like how frequently are you getting value to your customers and what's your batch size? Like, are you taking on features that are about the right size so you can continue to deliver value to your customers? The reason we wrote the book is because of what I said earlier, we're getting agile organizations who are delivering a flow of value, but they're not producing a flow of profit. Mm-hmm. And it, let's think about this from the executive standpoint, and let's pick up any size company. Executives aren't compensated for value. That doesn't mean anything. especially in a public company, you're not compensated for value. You're compensated for creating a profit. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing in the agile community, a bit of a backlash, to be honest. And what I mean by the bit of a backlash is that you're seeing, for example, Capital One firing hundreds of agile coaches and scrum masters. You're seeing different companies say, look, we've been putting millions of dollars into agile in training, et cetera. And we need profit, especially with our macro economy, with high inflation, with high inflation rates, high cost of capital, people need profit. And right. so what, what we're saying is let's evolve, let's improve, let's actually move from creating value to creating profit. Now, let, let me not talk abstractly. Let me ask you some really basic questions. If I go to a company that's doing Agile, I'll ask them a simple question. I'll say, I don't worry about your Agile process. Like, I don't care if you're using Scrum or Less or say whatever. Right. In the last year, have you consistently delivered value to your customers? 
And if they're an agile organization, the answer is almost always yes. We are, you know, right. we're we're consistently delivering. And then I say, when was the last time you explicitly raised your pricing or you explicitly changed your packaging to make sure that the value you're delivering is resulting in more revenue for your company? Yeah. That's not as easy an answer. Many times the wow, we haven't raised our pricing in eight months, 12 yeah. months, 24 months. And I'm like, okay, you haven't raised pricing in two years. Have you paid more people in salary? And people, then I get the response, well, you don't understand, Luke, we're growing as a company. And so we're fine. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not, no one can grow indefinitely, right? There's always some limit to the size of the market. And you want to condition your customers that when you're creating more value for them, you're going to get more value back. Yeah. So two things come to my mind when you say that. One, it go it took me back in time to my MBA days where my marketing professor said one thing which really stuck in my mind. I mean, even to this day, I'm talking like 15 years plus, it's still very top of mind, which is pricing is the single biggest lever when it comes to revenue and profits. It absolutely is. Sound right. Yeah. Pricing, typically, well, there's two elements to this, VJ. One is pricing improvements always all, almost exclusively fall directly to the bottom line. Yeah. It's very, very frictionless. I mean, if I build a new feature for my application and it's really significant, well, now I have to do a press release and I have to Right. update my documentation. I have to update my sales team. I have to educate them on how to talk to the customers, which is great, right? That's an expense. But if I simply were to raise my price, I might have some small costs associated with communicating a price increase to existing customers. But that's a really powerful lever because it's a low cost lever. And the second is that McKinsey has data that shows that roughly a 1% in price increase creates a five to 8% increase in actual profit and unit margins. So it's, it, it's really curious to me that organizations are not investing much more in their pricing and packaging. It's, it's kind of just curious to me. Yeah, for sure. And then when you are making your other case, again, well put, in terms of like, how are you measuring value and if you're delivering the right value? So in my mind, the second point that came to me was pricing is a good test to see if you're delivering the right value or not. If right. you increase the price and customers are still sticking, not, not complaining a whole lot and not churning, that means you're, first of all, leaving less money on the table. And the second is customers still see a lot of value in what you're delivering. Right. All right. I know we are coming up uh, against the R uh, over here. We can go on and on in all these topics. Yeah. Last two questions for you, Luke, is uh, what resources or communities or our people do you lean on to stay up to date uh, in terms of go-to-market practices, agile, you said agile community, I can imagine that, pricing, or, or even understanding your target customers' problems. Like, how do you, how do you stay involved? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm not as familiar with any specific communities associated only or exclusively with go-to-market. I tend to think of go-to-market as part of what product management and product marketing do. So I tend to associate with both agile and less agile aspects of product management and product marketing. So like the product development and management association 
is a very uh, classic organization about product management. You see also in the SAFE, the Scaled Agile community, we have a lot of Agile product managers from the Agile product management course. And so those are some communities that I, I stay involved with. And then, of course, there's LinkedIn. There's a couple of groups in LinkedIn that are useful. I personally don't use Facebook, so I, I'm sure there are communities on Facebook. I just don't participate in those communities. Yep, fair enough. And then the final question to you is, if you were to turn back the clock, what advice would you give to your younger self? Granted, you will be happy, you'll be satisfied with where you are and how things shape. But if you were to give advice to someone who is younger in their career? Well, yeah, it's it's funny. I, I we, we had a dinner party one time, not too long ago, a couple of months ago. And one of my friends was over, Danny, and he was just eating dinner with us. And he's like, he said, what's the one thing you would change in your life? And everyone around the table had something they would change. And I had nothing I would change because my life I've lived is how I've gotten to here. I wouldn't change anything, the good or the bad. However, there are useful things that, because I do consult with and coach and mentor some young entrepreneurs, right? And so I enjoy that because I was given advice from people and I think we should pay it forward. So some of the consistent pieces of advice that I like to give to younger people include the the idea that you can constantly be learning and you can constantly be reading and listening to podcasts. You know, podcasts are marvelous like this because they really do expand our ability to listen. And, you know, when you're driving in your car, why would you waste your time listening to something that doesn't give you nutritional value. I'd rather you listen to your podcast, right? So I think it's always about being hungry, staying humble, learning, growing as generic advice. And now, and then very specific advice, it's stay tuned to the profound technological changes that continue to shape our society and our world. A few years ago, the most profound change was the introduction of the blockchain. Now, Bitcoin and all of the cryptocurrencies aside, blockchain is an important technology. And understanding what that technology was about and its potential uses is important. Another obvious thing that's going on right now is AI and large language models. And that's just, the I think the generic advice to younger um, people is, we all live in very exciting times. And we get stale when we don't stay current. So do your best to stay current. Fantastic. Lovely conversation, Luke. Thank you so much and good luck to you and the team. Wonderful. Hi there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the B2B Go-To-Market Leaders podcast. I have all of the show notes and a full transcript on strative.com. S-T-R-A-T-Y-V-E.com subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get a podcast, leave a rating and a review. Your comments will help other go-to-market professionals find this podcast.